It's Monday, December 28th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. For all those parents with kids doing remote learning this year, pay attention to your children's grades. In some cases, the auto-grading software used to grade quizzes and schoolwork are getting it wrong. If a student's answers don't match exactly what the teacher has in the answer guide, it can be marked wrong, even if it's just a capitalization discrepancy. Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how these auto-grading systems are causing headaches for teachers and parents. Next, a look back at the early days of the pandemic and the first nursing home outbreak at the Life Care Center of Kirkland in Washington. 46 people died there, but did those deaths have to happen? The way that COVID-19 tore through this facility is a cautionary tale for the way we operate nursing homes in the United States. There were failures at many steps during the way, all while residents and workers saw some of their friends get sick and die. Katie Engelhart, contributor to California Sunday Magazine, spent months investigating what happened and joins us for how it all played out. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I just opened the test online to see what questions he'd missed. And I found several questions where he did answer the question correctly, but he was marked wrong because his answer that he typed in contained capital letters. Joining us now is Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Julie. Thanks for having me. I wanted to check in on how everything is going with all this remote learning that's going on right now because of the pandemic. Julie, you actually wrote an article about how, in a lot of cases, bots are grading the schoolwork and and quizzes for a lot of students in some of these online classrooms. And a lot of times they're actually getting it wrong. They're marking answers that are right incorrectly. And it has to do with very simple type of corrections. But either way, kids are coming home with lower grades, things like that. And then parents, on the flip side, have to contact teachers and try to get everything squared away. Julie, help us walk through some of what's happening. I only discovered this because my son, who's doing remote school, he studied really hard for a science exam. He expected to do well. I thought he would do well on it. And then we found out he had a very low grade on it. So I just opened the test online to see what questions he'd missed. And I found several questions where he did answer the question correctly, but he was marked wrong because his answer that he typed in contained capital letters where the way the teacher input it into the answer key, it was lowercase. So there were several things like that that I discovered between him and my other kids when I went back to kind of look at what was going on here. And then I also queried a bunch of other parents to see if they were discovering similar issues, and they were. Yeah, it's like when you're entering a password for your email login or something, and it always says, don't forget, the password is case-sensitive. So you have to type in the exact uppercase and lowercase combination the right way. And that's exactly what was happening. You even had a few screenshots in your article about what was going on. And one of the questions was something about certain plants have special tissues that move sugar, water, and minerals between plant parts. And the answer is vascular plants. But when the teacher inputs the answer, you know, she had a capital V for vascular and then a lowercase p for plants. And if you put it, I think in the example here, both the V and the P were capitalized. And because of that, they got the answer wrong. So tell us about what online system that they were using there and a little bit more about how these answers are inputted. 
Yeah, and that was actually an example from my son's test. I took a screenshot of that. (laughs) Um, And his teacher went back in once I told him and gave him the points for it. So he and my other kids are using, their school district is using a system called Canvas, which is pretty, one of the big online school platforms that a lot of districts and colleges are using. There's another educational software company called Otis that also has auto grading as a feature in the online classroom. So what they are doing is they are relying on these kind of auto grading systems, which were, I think, billed as a way to save teachers time. But what it's doing instead, in many cases, is requiring teachers to then go back manually through all of these tests for all of their students and make sure that they're getting credit for the answers that they do mark down correctly. I want to give one more example because these are very simplistic. I mean, if somebody was grading this manually, you can see where they would get it right. What happens when magnets come in contact with other magnets? So the incorrect answer that was put in there was they pull together or they repel. But the correct answer, as the teacher would have inputted it, was they attract or repel each other. So just these very little minor, minor differences are causing kids to get the answers wrong on these quizzes and other schoolwork like that. So what has been the response by teachers and the company as well? Because you spoke to representatives from Canvas. Canvas acknowledged that this is an issue. They said that they are aware of it and that, in fact, they frequently receive questions about this and, you know, complaints about it from teachers. And they're aware of it. They have a a quiz system that kind of their older version of their quiz system that 75% of their customers are still using. And about 18 months ago, they began rolling out an upgraded quiz feature that will recognize answers when they are close enough to the answer that the teacher put in the quiz. So they are trying to make improvements overall to their online quizzing, but the majority of their of the customers are still using them, the older version where these mistakes are happening and part uh, if, the, if the exact match isn't made. And part of what they said too was that in the rush to do all the remote learning, teachers didn't have enough training also on how to do some of this. So they were also putting it on lack of training for teachers too. Obviously, school districts last spring just were kind of caught off guard by the sudden switch. And while they did have more time over the summer to prepare for this fall, it was still a big learning curve, uh, I would imagine, for teachers to learn brand new systems. You know, these online grading, it's not just online grading, it's the whole platform of where you submit, where you post your assignments, where you have your Zoom links for the kids' classes. All of those things are kind of in one place. And that's, a lot of stuff to learn how to navigate. So it could very well be that, you know, in many cases, teachers didn't have enough time to fully understand that this could be a problem. It's easy to miss. If your student has one or two answers wrong, you know, so they get a B or maybe a C on a test, you may not think that's anything to worry about. But if enough of those kind of add up, the student might get a failing grade versus a passing grade. Julie Jargon, family and tech columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This is a failure of the nursing home. The nursing home has been fined for a number of violations, over $600,000. But then I started to kind of tease apart, well, who knew that there wasn't a doctor in the facility? What I found was that County officials have kind of asked around at local hospitals, hey, can anyone else fill in at life care? No one stepped forward. Joining us now is Katie Engelhart, contributor to California Sunday Magazine. Thanks for joining us, Katie. Thanks for having me. 
you wrote a piece for the California Sunday Magazine looking at the Life Care Center of Kirkland in Washington. It was the first COVID hotspot in the United States. It was a nursing home facility. 46 people died there that were residents or, or staff and all. And you spent months investigating this. You wrote a, a huge comprehensive piece on this. It focuses on the story of two women who lived in the nursing home. They lived in side-by-side beds in room 10 there. One of them died. The other one lived. One of their daughters is suing the nursing home facility. The other uh, daughter of the other woman said they maybe did everything they could do given the circumstances. But it really just underscores how unprepared we were as a country, how unprepared nursing home facilities across the country, because the majority of COVID-19 deaths have occurred in nursing home facilities. Obviously, these mm-hmm. are our most vulnerable, our, our oldest citizens. It is an incredible story that you really wrote on this. So start us off. Tell us what happened there at the Life Care Center of Kirkland. Well, as you said, you know, the story is focusing on two women, Helen and Twyla, who lived in room 10 of the Life Care Center in Kirkland, Washington. And we've heard a lot about nursing home deaths during COVID. Nursing home residents account for a teeny fraction of 1% of the population, and still they make up more than a quarter of total COVID deaths. So when one of the daughters, Twyla Morin's daughter, Debbie, announced that she was suing the nursing home, I really wanted to look at this issue of blame. To what extent was the Life Care Center responsible for these deaths? And to what extent was these deaths just inevitable when the virus got inside the building? Because we know it targets older populations. And what I found was a sort of more confusing mix of things. Federal investigators have found that the Life Care Center, the nursing home, made pretty considerable errors in its handling of the pandemic. But what I found kind of around those failures were failures by local hospitals, county, state, and federal officials. I can give you one example. Early on in the pandemic, residents start dying at the Life Care Center, and Life Care's doctor goes out sick. He starts experiencing symptoms. He can no longer come in. Well, now we're in the middle of a pandemic at a nursing home and there are no doctors available. The nursing home does not have a backup physician available and cannot find one. So days pass in which residents are dying and no doctor is on staff to treat them. This is a failure of the nursing home. The nursing home has been fined for a number of violations, over $600,000. But then I started to kind of tease apart, well, who knew that there wasn't a doctor in the facility? What I found was that county officials have kind of asked around at local hospitals, hey, can anyone else fill in at life care? No one stepped forward. The county itself didn't send doctors on site for several days. Also, officials of the Department of Health in Washington and the federal government at the Centers for Medicare Services, they all knew that there was no doctor at life care and no one was able to come up with a doctor. So we see these failures at different levels. But even beyond that, just playing with the same example of the missing doctor, Basically, there aren't requirements that nursing homes have backup physicians on staff or kind of a secondary person who's there to look at residents. A doctor can be basically working solo in a nursing home without much oversight at all. In it, you have low levels of staffers because they started getting sick, too. And a lot of them were calling out. They were working on a skeleton crew. And there's moments that, you know, you write in the story where they're just at their wits end. They don't know what to do. They're trying to answer calls from family members, but at the same time, they're like, hey, I got to go. I got to make a 911 call to get a resident out of here. It was like a fire the whole time. 
if we consider the context, you know, this is at a moment in time where we're really not taking COVID seriously. And, you know, it seems to be sort of a minor threat to the United States. Inside this nursing home, we have residents who aren't being fed regularly, not being bathed regularly, who are being left unattended for long stretches of time. I spoke with a doctor who has experienced treating Ebola patients in West Africa. And he said that when he got to the nursing home several weeks later as as part of a relief effort, he realized it was a humanitarian mission, not unlike the ones he's participated in abroad. But you're right, the low-level staff were absolutely strapped. They were going out sick. The ones that were there were doing the best that they could. Every single staff member who I spoke to, either on or off the record, cried a lot while we were on the phone together. So I think, you know, it's clear that the staff really suffered. And I think, you know, the lack of preparedness was clear sort of at every level. I did a very haunting interview with Dr. Stephen Morris at the Harborview Medical Center. He's part of what's called disaster medical control for King County. So he helps kind of move patients around when there's an emergency. And he said to me, you know, we weren't really looking at nursing homes. He said he was working on plans to deal with other vulnerable populations like homeless populations. And it didn't really strike him that this was something that was going to affect nursing homes disproportionately, even though the data from China was already suggesting that it would. And I think we see this at every level. You know, I looked at a Washington state kind of a pandemic preparedness exercise that was done a few years ago. A big report was written. I found that nursing homes were rarely mentioned in this big 90 page report. And when they were mentioned, it was kind of an offhand reference as part of a bigger list of different kinds of healthcare facilities. By contrast, that state plan had several sections devoted to very precise requirements for state veterinarians. So I think that gives you a good sense for how much nursing homes are kind of on the minds of public officials. What do we know about how the coronavirus first infiltrated there at the Life Care Center? And what was, do we know, you know, we we hear a lot about super spreader events and whatnot. Do we know Mm -hmm. if there was a specific moment that really kind of release the coronavirus throughout the nursing home there? We don't. And there's no sort of patient zero at the nursing home. What we do know from other facilities is that in some cases, you know, it's staff that brought the virus into facilities. What's really important to know is that low-level nursing assistants make incredibly low wages and are usually working without benefits, which means that they often work multiple jobs at multiple facilities to make ends meet. And they're likely to go to work sometimes when they're sick because they need to make rent payments and they're not being offered paid sick leave. So we're finding that the way that staff are treated is really closely connected to resident welfare. If staff are coming in sick, residents are going to suffer. And frankly, we're paying attention to those things now because it's coronavirus. But it's really got me thinking like, gosh, a lot of elderly people die of influenza every year. How many of those deaths were preventable if we were just better about infection control in these facilities? Tell me a little bit about Mm -hmm. testing, because testing is an issue around the country, obviously. But in the beginning there at the nursing home, they requested a bunch of tests. They gave them like half or less than half of what they needed to test, even just the residents. Mm -hmm. You know, staffers were another story. Yes, you know, there are some things that were easy for me to understand, like at the beginning, there being just a general shortage of tests. That's part of, you know, much bigger story and some of it unique to the United States. But other aspects of the testing story at LifeCare are harder for me to understand. I spoke to several staff members who worked in the nursing home for months. We're talking five, six, seven days a week. They were never tested. They never once got tested for COVID during that time. 
And the nursing home would have known by then that staff members can be asymptomatic and still be spreading the virus. So that's a really big problem. And, you know, I think now, actually, the, the testing issues gets back at this larger point of accountability. You know, at the beginning, there was a shortage of tests and the government just didn't have them. But now who should really be responsible for getting the tests? And the nursing home industry will say these tests are really expensive and we need government to provide them for us. And the state should be testing residents for free. But a lot of kind of industry critics will say, no, a lot of these nursing homes are making a lot of money and they should be buying their own tests. So even now, I think there's a lot of kind of punting of responsibility for what to do. And and still in about half of states, nursing home staff aren't able to test with the regularity that's recommended by the CDC. This is such a detailed and comprehensive story, and it's just tough to get to every angle in this one Mm -hmm. interview here. But there was an inspection done about how, you know, everything went through there. This was done by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They yeah. went to evaluate the handling of the outbreak. What was the result of that report? I should say, you know, that the nursing home is currently appealing these findings, but the nursing home was found to have made errors which placed residents in what's called immediate jeopardy. And the nursing home was fined around $600,000 for those errors. And shortly after that report, of course, is when family members start talking about potential wrongful death litigation against the nursing home. And this is really important because right now the industry is basically fighting to make sure that lawsuits like the one that's currently pending against life care don't happen. So we've seen in a lot of states, industry groups lobbying to get states to pass immunity legislation, meaning that families can never sue for anything related to coronavirus. And the industry is also pushing the federal government to do the same. So I think that question of accountability is going to be a big one in the kind of months ahead. And critics will say it's easy to blame a single facility. It's possible to have a lawsuit against a nursing home, much more complicated if you're trying to bring in a range of government actors who have under-regulated nursing homes for a really long time. As I mentioned at the beginning, you spent months investigating this. This overall was really a story about two women there, Twyla and Helen, and and kind of how they experienced this almost uh, at the Life Care Center of Kirkland, Washington. Just tell us the top takeaway, I guess, from looking into this and, and seeing the handling of all this. What could you say is the top takeaway from all this? What surprised me most was just how little nursing homes are regulated in some areas and how little we know about what goes on in nursing homes, even though at any given time around 1.4 million Americans, most of them elderly or people with disabilities, are living in a nursing home. So what I found, for instance, is that the nursing home industry is largely made up of private companies. 70% of nursing homes are for-profit. Many of them are backed by private equity groups. And those companies receive billions of dollars every year in public money. Still, They don't even need to publish financial statements that are available to residents or family members. They don't need to really reveal much about who they're trading with and who's providing services. And so what I'm finding is that there's just a huge amount of underregulation that has really contributed to some of the issues like understaffing that have affected us during COVID. Katie Engelhart, contributor to California Sunday Magazine. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Diver is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.